to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, January 16th, 2023. On King Day, meet Who is My Neighbor? This is an article by Grace King of the Gazette. Wellington Heights Pastors, Kennedy Student Honored. It's out of Cedar Rapids. Keon and Stephanie Carter, activists and founders of the Wellington Heights Community Church, are being recognized today with the Dr. Percy and Lilia Harris, who is My Neighbor Award, for speaking honestly and courageously about the work of justice. Also a recipient of the award is Kennedy High School senior Gentine Nazare Correra, 18, for her leadership and commitment to moving Lynn County closer to the dream of civil rights leaders Martin Luther King Jr., said Jonathan Hefner, associate pastor at St. Paul's United Methodist Church. The award will be presented at St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Martin Luther King Day community celebration at 6.30 p.m. today in the sanctuary in Cedar Rapids. Kian and Stephanie Carter. Kian and Stephanie Carter started Wellington Heights Community Church in March of 2020. It was known as a church without walls until it held a grand opening in 2022 at renovated space at the former Paul Engel Center, 1600 4th Avenue Southeast. The organization is a hub for the neighborhood in the southeast quadrant of Cedar Rapids, working to help the community flourish through worship, reconciliation, and neighborhood development. One thing Dr. King said is, We fear each other because we don't know each other, Kian said. One of our goals as a church is to create a space for people to sit at the table. Stephanie said they are putting feet to the sidewalk to get to know people in the neighborhood and come alongside them to meet their needs. Nazora Corora is a leader of Kennedy High's Black Student Union, which is working to create a better learning environment for students of color. Over the last year, the group has been educating their peers on why the use of racial slurs, which they say are commonly heard in the school's hallways, is inappropriate. Zakorora said she would like to see teachers working alongside students to make schools inclusive and anti-racist. Right now, it's often just a word they use, she said. Zorcorera also has been outspoken about wanting to see changes made to the school resource officer or police in schools program. Changes made to the Cedar Rapids schools program over the last two years are contributing to fewer children being charged with a crime in schools and decreasing the racial disparity of those complaints, according to data from the Iowa Department of Human Rights. Kennedy's Black Student Union is hosting its second Voices of the Voiceless Night, 5 p.m., January 27th, an open mic night at Kennedy High, 4545 Winnick Road, Northeast, in Cedar Rapids. The Warriorettes, a Washington High School dance group, also will be performing at the event. The students perform majorette dancing, a traditionally black style of dance that blends movements from jazz, West African, and hip-hop dance styles. Pursuing Justice in Cedar Rapids There is a danger in remembering a sanitized version of King's story, Hefner said, This event will focus on King's legacy, celebrate those who are carrying on his vision in the community, and inspire them to use their voices in the pursuit of justice. The theme, Voices of Today, Provoking Action, Building Community, takes a look at who is doing social justice work today in the community and how others can support that work. Speakers include Nazakoraya, Dedrick Doolin, longtime branch president of the Cedar Rapids NAACP, 
Tamara Marcus, social justice and climate action activist, and Tom Moore, director of programming and outreach at the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Corridor and director of the LGBTQ Plus Youth Center at Tanager and executive director at the African American Museum of Iowa. About Percy and Lilia Harris. Dr. Percy Harris was the first black physician in Cedar Rapids and served as Lynn County Medical Examiner for almost 40 years, as well as president of the Cedar Rapids chapter of the NAACP and chair of the board of directors of the Jane Boyd Community House. He also served on the boards of Unity Point Health, St. Luke's, and the Iowa Board of Regents. Lilea Harris was an advocate of lifelong learning and education. She also served on the board of the NAACP, was a member of the Cedar Rapids Human Rights Commission, and served on the board of the Cedar Rapids Symphony Guild, now Orchestra Iowa. The program today is hosted by St. Paul's United Methodist Church in collaboration with First Light Christian Fellowship, Mount Mercy University, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, and the, ND, excuse me, the NAACP, with special thanks to the African American Museum of Iowa, the Cedar Rapids Public Library, and the Cedar Rapids Civil Rights Commission. The next article is Youth Practice Activism Inspired by MLK. Iowa City students share fears about bills affecting LGBTQ students. This is by Grace King of the Gazette. Out of Iowa City. Harry Epstein, 18, practiced walking in the shoes of civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr., speaking out against the harmful bills being proposed this month in the Iowa legislature affecting gay and transgender youth. Epstein, a transgender girl and a senior at Iowa City High School, was one of a dozen youth who spoke Friday about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights, racial and gender equality, and gun violence at an open mic night at the United Action for Youth Center, a youth social services organization in Iowa City. The Open Mic Night is part of a month-long series to celebrate, educate, and honor the life and legacy of King, sponsored by United Action for Youth and the Iowa City Public Library. The night was a way for youth to learn from the legacy and use their words to create change, said Victoria Fernandez of the Iowa City Public Library. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a federal holiday that honors the civil rights icon who was assassinated in 1968. Kylie Budden, with United Action for Youth, said in studying the life of King, they are learning how many acts during the civil rights movement of the 1960s were not huge or major, individually by themselves. Lots of small actions of good trouble lead to big change, Budden said, quoting John Lewis, another one of the leaders of the civil rights movement. The grand organizations were great, but simply showing up and sitting at a counter you weren't allowed at was a huge act that created big change, Budden said referring to the sit-in in 1960 when young black students staged a sit-in at a segregated Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, and refused to leave after being denied service. Students are writing letters to Governor Kim Reynolds and other state leaders, voicing opposition to bills recently introduced related to gay and transgender youth. House File 8 specifies that schools cannot provide instruction or material on sexual orientation or gender identity to students in kindergarten through third grade. House File 9 would prohibit school districts from providing any accommodations intended to affirm a student's gender identity without written consent from the child's parent or guardian. Learn more about King. Youth are invited to participate in free events this month held at the United Action for Youth Center, 355 Iowa Avenue in Iowa City. 
from 5 to 7 p.m. every Friday this month in partnership with the Iowa City Public Library. The next event, on January 20th, will be about creating. Students will take a field trip to the Stanley Museum of Art at the University of Iowa before returning to the United Action for Youth Center to create work inspired by the Civil Rights Movement. The series will end January 27th with an opportunity to serve. Students will learn about service projects during the Civil Rights Movement and donate food that's being collected throughout the month to Community Crisis Services and Food Bank in Iowa City. We'll turn to the Iowa Today section. The headline is Coralville Seeks Grants to Relocate Power Lines. Project, which is in Mid-American Service Area, estimated to cost nearly $20 million. By Isabella Zaluska from the Gazette out of Coralville. The city of Coralville is applying for state and federal grants to help pay for relocating overhead power and communication lines underground. The Utility Resilience Project is estimated to cost $19.6 million. Residents are invited to a public information meeting at 5.15 p.m. Tuesday in Coralville City Hall to learn more about the project. The meeting will include a brief presentation and an opportunity for comments and questions. The city is pursuing the project to make utility lines less vulnerable to severe storms and weather, as well as improve utility reliability for residents. Power lines would be relocated from overhead in backyards to underground in front yards. The city estimates the project would improve utility reliability for more than 9,000 Coralville residents. The project area includes the Mid-American Energy Service Area, which is south of Interstate 80. After a storm that damages power lines, utility companies must navigate streets and backyards covered in debris, which can delay repairs and service restoration. The city says 23 high wind events were recorded in Johnson County from 1996 to 2010. The August 2020 derecho caused power outages that went unrepaired for days as utility crews navigated debris to reach the lines. The city is seeking $13.72 million from the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program and $1.96 million from Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management. The application to FEMA's program requires a local match, which the city expects would be $3.92 million. Deputy City Administrator Ellen Habel wrote in a memo to the Coralville City Council, Mid-American Energy is supportive of this project, and we are in discussions with them regarding their financial commitment, which would go toward the city's share, Habel said. The grant and the city's contribution are expected to cover all construction costs. The city will be responsible for the maintenance and operation of the utility improvements, as well as maintaining the improvements for at least 20 years, according to the city. Our next article is headline is Suspect Arrested in Ped Mall Shooting out of Iowa City. A man fired a stolen gun at point-blank range toward a victim Saturday afternoon near the downtown pedestrian mall and then tossed the weapon in a trash bin before being arrested, court records show. Though people were on the street and saw the shooting, police said they don't believe anyone was injured as the man fired several shots. But court records show bullets struck the old Capitol Town Center. Dante James Jans, 29, of Iowa City, faces charges of intimidation with a dangerous weapon, going armed with intent, assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, and reckless use of a firearm. In a news release about the shooting, police said witnesses reported an armed subject 
shortly before 4 p.m., Saturday at the intersection of East College and South Clinton Streets. Thanks to timely witness information provided to dispatchers, officers were able to detain the shooter, police said. Court records show that a police officer was nearby at the time. I heard gunshots and observed multiple people running from the area afterwards, wrote Officer Michelle Schultz. She reported that multiple witnesses identified Yance as the shooter. Court records show Yance admitted to police he shot at an individual and discarded the gun in the trash. Police said they retrieved the gun, a Glock, from a trash bin on the Ped Mall. Our next article, Police Man Shot Killed During Home Invasion in Monticello. Monticello, a man was finally shot after breaking... I'm sorry, let me start that again. A man was fatally shot after breaking into a Monticello man's home last week, according to Monticello's chief of police. At 1.48 a.m. Wednesday, a man called 911 in Jones County to report someone trying to break in at his home in the 300 block of South Sycamore Street. Before an officer arrived, the resident got a gun and shot the intruder, who had gotten inside and confronted him, according to the news release. Authorities uh, identified the alleged intruder as Patrick M. O'Brien, 30. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The man and a 10-year-old at the home were uninjured, police said. The incident remains under investigation. Uh, The next article we have is entitled Lawmaker and Gender Balance Rules for Boards. This is by Clark Kaufman from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A Western Iowa lawmaker has introduced legislation to eliminate the gender balance requirements for appointed boards, committees, and commissions that are established by state law. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican out of Schleswig, last week introduced Senate Study Bill 1037. He said it's not part of any cultural agenda, but an attempt to do away with a law he says is no longer necessary due to advances made by women in the professional world. At the same time, Schultz said, panels and boards in Iowa are having a tough time complying with gender balance requirements, and eliminating them will help fill vacancies. My reason for doing this is to respond to a number of complaints I have received from folks who are just having difficulty trying to fill their boards, Schultz said. I don't believe a gender balance requirement is necessary. I mean, we're in an environment now where the majority of college graduates are women, where every field of expertise is fully open to anybody who works themselves into those positions, he said. I believe it's just time for Iowa law to reflect the environment we are in now. As for the boards and commissions that are having trouble finding new members, Schultz said the gender balance requirement represents an artificial barrier to resolving that problem. Asked if removing the requirement would lead to boards and commissions dominated by men, he said the problem is that volunteer boards or local boards of counties or cities are having trouble finding anyone, male or female, to serve. Schultz declined to say which boards and commissions had raised the issue with him. I'm kind of reluctant to drop any names, he said. I don't want them I don't want to draw attention to them. The gender balance requirement that's now in place applies only to those local councils, commissions, and boards that are created or guided by state law. Asked whether the bill would apply to the specific boards and commissions that have complained, Schultz said, My understanding is, and, well, I guess I had better read it, though I am glad to talk to you, but the intention is that it covers any board that's now covered by the law. 
Schultz added that there is no real agenda as far as the culture war that's going on. It's just that I believe the law no longer reflects the need to push our culture in that direction. I think gender imbalance has been corrected or has corrected itself. So this would be somewhat similar to the bill I ran last year to remove the requirement for non-smoking signs on any corporate or public property. Simply, we don't need that law anymore. Everybody already knows you can't smoke there. Of the 123 organizations that have registered to lobby state lawmakers on the issue, 12 have stated that they are undecided on the issue. The Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund is registered as opposing the bill. It's very important that our boards and commission have a diversity of voices as they work through the issues they contend with, said Connie Ryan, executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa. We know that women are often overlooked in overlooked in positions of power, and so making that a requirement is still important in today's world. Do we wish that it weren't? Absolutely, but it is still important. Ryan said women and men have a different approach to volunteering in the sense that women often have to be recruited or asked to serve. That places a responsibility on boards to make more of an effort to reach out to women, she said. My hope is that someday we'll get to that point Senator Schultz is talking about, where women and men, and also non-binary and trans people, etc., are all treated equally, she said. Someday that may happen, but it is not reality today. According to the Iowa Department of Human Rights, gender balance on state-level boards and commissions has been required since 1987. In 2009, the Iowa legislature extended the requirement to certain county and city boards and commissions, effective January 1, 2012. The mandate does not apply to boards or commissions set up locally and with no authority or guidance in state law. Before the law was enacted, positions on boards and commissions were often filled on a who-you-know basis, according to the department. Because of this, many talented and qualified women were simply not considered, according to the department's guide to recruiting women. The department says although women make up more than half of Iowa's population and outnumber men in 90 of Iowa's 99 counties, historically they've been underrepresented on local boards and commissions, especially those that make economic decisions. The Department of Human Rights acknowledges that without some effort being made, Iowa's councils and boards and commissions may have difficulty finding women to serve. Suits target gender, racial balance laws. The membership of government panels also is under scrutiny in Iowa courts. Two Iowans are suing the state in federal court over gender-based restrictions to serve on the state judicial nominating commission. Rachel Rack Law of Correctionville and Micah Brockmeyer of Iowa City say that for more than 30 years, Iowa law has imposed a gender quota on the selection process to fill vacancies on the state judicial nominating commission, which is the panel that interviews candidates for Iowa's appellate courts. That lawsuit filed last May is pending. In a separate case, Kevin Wymore, a retired public health analyst, sued the city of Cedar Rapids last year over an ordinance that established a nine-member citizen review board with each member appointed by the mayor to staggered three-year terms. The ordinance stated that the board must include a minimum of five voting members who identify as people of color. In October, a federal judge issued an injunction blocking the city from continuing to use the racial quota in selecting members for the board. The next article is, as the title, Wife of Woodbury Official Faces Voter Fraud Charges by Nick Hytrek from the Sioux City Journal. It's out of Sioux City. 
The wife of Woodbury County Supervisor Jeremy Taylor faces 52 counts of voter fraud in an alleged scheme in which she fraudulently filled out absentee ballot requests and voter registration forms and cast absentee ballots on behalf of others during Taylor's unsuccessful run for Congress in the 2020 primary election and his re-election to the county board that fall. Kim Fong Taylor, 49, was arrested last Thursday and pleaded not guilty to 26 counts of providing false information in registering and voting, three counts of fraudulent registration, and 23 counts of fraudulent voting. She was released on personal recognizance and ordered to surrender her passport. A trial was set for March 20 in U.S. District Court in Sioux City. A federal indictment spelled out a scheme in which Kim Taylor allegedly approached members of Sioux City's Vietnamese community and filled out voter registration forms in their names and also voted absentee ballots, signing affidavits with their names. Her actions took place leading up to the June primary election in which Jeremy Taylor unsuccessfully ran for the Republican nomination for Iowa's 4th District congressional seat and leading up to the November general election in which Taylor defeated incumbent Democrat Marty Potenbaum by nearly 2000 votes for the District 3 seat on the council I'm sorry on the county board a call seeking comment made to Jeremy Taylor's cell phone went straight to voicemail and no one answered his home phone He also did not respond to a text message seeking comment. Kim Taylor's attorney, John Greer of Spencer, declined to comment on the charges. According to the U.S. Justice Department, the FBI continues to investigate the case. A spokeswoman at the FBI's Omaha field office referred questions to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Tony Morfitt, spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Northern District of Iowa, said he could not comment on the indictment or investigation. Woodbury County Auditor Pat Gill confirmed he notified the Iowa Secretary of State's office after his office was contacted about the potential voter fraud just before the November 2020 election. Gill said he was told to contact the FBI. We received a call from one of the folks that had a ballot voted for them, Gill said. According to the indictment, Kim Taylor, whom Jeremy Taylor met while teaching in Vietnam, approached Sioux City residents with Vietnamese backgrounds who had limited ability to read and understand English and offered to help them vote. Before both elections in 2020, she helped them fill out voter registration forms or filled them out herself and submitted them to the auditor's office. Kim Taylor also is accused of signing absentee ballot request forms for residents who are not present or told residents they could sign the forms for other family members, a violation of the registration affidavit. Taylor then delivered the ballots to the auditor's office, causing the casting of votes in the names of residents who had no knowledge of and had not consented to the casting of their ballots, the indictment said. Kim Taylor voted her own ballots in both elections, the indictment said. Jeremy Taylor was seeking the county board seat after resigning from the board earlier that year over questions about his official address. After an investigation, Gill ruled Taylor, who was first elected to the board in 2014, could no longer hold his District 2 seat because he had improperly used an address for a former home in Sioux City on his voter registration, but was living in a home in District 3, violating a state law. After his third-place finish in the primary race for Congress, a Woodbury County Republican panel selected him to run against Potterbaum for the county board's District 3 seat. After redistricting in 2020, Taylor, a former state legislator, now represents District 5 and serves as the board's vice chairman. 
He's up for re-election in 2024. I'll read an article from the Nation World section. The headline is Biden honors Martin Luther King with nods to 2024 voting rights. Out of the Dallas Morning News, out of Atlanta, Joe Biden, in a Sunday sermon at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, used the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic pulpit to build bridges with black voters as he gears up for a re-election bid. Alluding to his failure to deliver on a key campaign promise to restore voting rights protections erased by the Supreme Court in 2013, he recalled King's epic struggle for civil rights and voting rights. I have two heroes, Bobby Kennedy and no malarkey Dr. King, Biden told the congregation. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a nonviolent warrior for justice. We come to contemplate his moral vision and commit ourselves to his path. Biden has been inching closer to launching a 2024 campaign, and a Sunday sermon at Ebenezer, the first by a sitting president, was a big showcase. Black Democrats rescued his flailing 2020 nomination effort in the South Carolina primary and were critical in Georgia, Michigan, and other tight battlegrounds that fall. King's mission, Biden said, was to redeem the soul of America, but it's up to we the people to revive stalled voting rights legislation. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, Georgia's first black senator and the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist since 2005, invited Biden to speak. We celebrate the birthday of the greatest American prophet of the 20th century, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Warnock told the congregation. Presidents and ordinary people gather in the sanctuary in the presence of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord is here. Later in the service, Warnock ticked off some of Biden's achievements— the Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure investment, a cap on the cost of insulin. That, my friends, is God's work, and Georgia had a little something to do with it, he said. Biden carried Georgia by fewer than 12,000 votes in 2020. Former President Donald Trump's efforts to pressure Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican who won re-election in November, to find him enough votes to reverse the outcome, prompted an investigation of potential election interference by the Fulton County District Attorney, an elected Democrat. A special grand jury in Atlanta completed its work last week with a hearing set for January 24th on whether to release its findings. Charges are possible against Trump and others. Ebenezer was founded in 1886, and King preached there until his assassination in 1968. His sister and other family members were in the congregation Sunday. Mixing politics and gospel, Biden called this a time of choosing between community and chaos, and between love or hate, and between his own political vision and party, and that of Donald Trump and insurrection. King's mission, he said, was to redeem the soul of America. As the Bible teaches us, we must be doers of the word. It's a constant struggle between hope and fear, kindness and cruelty. Okay, we're going to turn to the insight section, the opinion, and this is by Philip Bump, a syndicated columnist, and the headline is The Rise and Fall of the Gas Stove Rebellion. To hear Representative Ronnie Jackson, a Republican in Texas, tell it, the Biden administration's latest decision is among its most insidious. I just think it's pathetic that we're doing this, Jackson said in an interview on Newsmax on Wednesday morning. I mean, there's so many other things they should be worried about right now. How about focusing on the crime in our cities or the fentanyl? Or, you know, our problems overseas with Russia and China and Iran. 
and what's going on over there or, you know, all the other issues that we have in this country with the economy. This is a complete waste of time, Jackson added, before assuring viewers they were not impotent in this critical fight. If you want to help me stop this, he said, go to savethestove.com. For, you see, the issue about which Jackson was so agitated, so fired up, as the Newsmax host quipped, was the idea that the government would soon be banning gas stoves in private homes. Jackson had tweeted a rousing defense of the cooking mechanism on Tuesday, and his Newsmax interview was simply a continuation of the theme. This is another example of government overreach from the Biden administration and another example of them using their agencies like this Consumer Product Protection Commission, actually the Consumer Product Safety Commission, just like they use the EPA and the SEC and the CDC, Jackson insisted. They always go back, and you can remember from COVID and everything else, they'll say there's some kind of science behind it that justifies it. There's no valid, legitimate science that proves that or that suggests that this type of cooking is any more hazardous than any other type of cooking. So that's wrong. There actually was research published in December linking emissions from gas stoves to increased rates of childhood asthma. It noted that known mitigation strategies, like improved ventilation or converting to electric stoves, could measurably reduce asthma, particularly in states where gas stoves were more common. It's also wrong because the Biden administration wasn't recommending anything related to gas stoves. In an interview with Bloomberg News, one member of the CPSC indicated that the commission would take action on gas stoves, adding that products that can't be made safe can be banned. But this was one comment from one commissioner, not a statement that the CPSC was undertaking the procedural steps needed to affect such a ban, but, le- but less to impose one unilaterally. On Wednesday morning, in fact, CPSC Chair Alexander Honsarek released a statement formally denying that any such plans were under consideration. Research indicates that emissions from gas stoves can be hazardous, and the CPSC is looking for ways to reduce related indoor air quality hazards, he wrote. But to be clear, I am not looking to ban gas stoves, and the CPSC has no proceeding to do so. In other words, not only was Biden not prioritizing gas stoves over Russia and China and Iran and what's going on over there, the CPSC itself wasn't obviously prioritizing it at all. It was not the case, as text at Save the Stove claimed, that our stoves are at risk, or that Biden and Democrats want to ban gas stoves in every home, including yours, while the website insisted that we can't let the maniacs in the White House get away with this, Those White House maniacs weren't trying to get away with anything of the sort. Those who signed Jackson's petition, of course, can expect imminent fundraising emails. Even if the CPSC had decided to ban gas stoves, it's not as if there would be a need for Jackson to defend his all-American burner top against jackbooted government thugs. The CPSC is not in the business of confiscation, but of restriction. It has a lengthy page delineating products that are subject to regulation, standards, and bans, but there is no process for even the banned products to be forcibly taken from homes. As the Washington Post's Shannon Osaka noted, it's not as if the CPSC's ban on lawn darts in the late 1980s was followed by an armed sweep through the suburbs to ferret out illegal darts from white clapboard garages. Consider asbestos. Asbestos is bad. It causes cancer. But it's not banned in the United States. 
In fact, the United States regularly imports it. In jurisdictions looking to remove asbestos, it's often taken out only when houses or buildings are refurbished, and then by people specially equipped for the removal. In places that are looking to phase out natural gas, often for climate change-related reasons, a similar standard is generally employed. When New York Governor Kathy Hochul this week proposed bringing New York City's law to that effect statewide, the ban would apply to new construction, not existing buildings. In other words, the process for phasing out gas stoves would not be to march to Ronnie Jackson's door, truncheon at the ready, but instead to wait until he's ready to move to a newly built place. That Jackson decided to champion this cause isn't really surprising. He represents the state of Texas, which in October was responsible for more than a quarter of all the natural gas produced in the United States. His Texasness comes through in his call to stoves. The come-and-take-it line is a callback to the line from the Texas Revolution. Happily, the great battle for the stoves has already been won, mostly because the other side never showed up. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Our first obituary is Daniel Beyer of Cedar Rapids. Daniel Beyer, 72, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Tuesday, January 10th at home. Private family services will take place at a later date. Dan will be heading back to Pismo Beach, California. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids, is caring for the family. Survivors include his daughters, Amanda Beyer of Cedar Rapids and Ellen Beyer of Westminster, Colorado, granddaughter Maya Kroll, and siblings Kathy, Connie, Karen, Bobby, and Lori. Daniel Christopher was born to Dale and Gwendolyn Johnson Beyer on December 3, 1950, in Illinois. He served in the Army, excuse me, the Army Air Force, Navy, and Air Force before his retirement. He was a giver. Dan's love of music of all genres, especially alternate music, made him happy. Dan was a regular reader of the Bible and wore his rosary, praying for everyone he met. He was passionate about recycling, especially old books, and would give the shirt off his back to anyone who needed it. Basically, he was pretty cool. He was preceded in death by his parents and four siblings. Please share your support and memories with Dan's family on his tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com under obituaries. Roger Sorowi, Cedar Rapids. Roger Sorowi, 90, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 14th. He was surrounded by his family at the time of his peaceful passing. Roger was born on June 25, 1932, in Cedar Rapids to Joe and Sadie Sorowi. Roger graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1950. After high school, he attended Iowa State University for a short period of time. He returned to Cedar Rapids to work alongside his father at his father's service station, the Skelly Station, in Checktown. Roger then had a career at Rockwell Collins for 29 years. Roger was united in marriage with his high school sweetheart, Marion, in 1951. Roger and Marion welcomed their son, Randy, into the world on September 20, 1952. Roger enjoyed fixing things, photography, and collecting model cars. He was an avid golfer and was lucky enough to have made a hole-in-one. 
Roger is survived by his wife, Marion, son, Randy, spouse, Debbie, of Brighton, Colorado, grandchildren, Ryan, spouse, Desiree, and Jamie, spouse, Lee, Katchen, of Brighton, Colorado, four great-grandchildren, and sisters, Sandra, spouse, Larry, Central of Cedar Rapids, and Doris, spouse, Rod, Vanvilson of Windsor, Colorado. He was preceded in death by his parents. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made in his name to Hospice of Mercy. Rhonda Jean Denger Wittrock, out of Belle Plaine. Rhonda Jean Denger Wittrock, 63, of Belle Plaine, passed away peacefully surrounded by family Friday, January 13th, at St. Luke's Hospital, Cedar Rapids, under hospice care. Mass of Christian Burial is 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 18th, at St. Michael's Catholic Church, Belle Plaine, Iowa. Burial will follow at Oak Hill Cemetery, Belle Plaine. Visitation will be 9 to 10.30 a.m. Wednesday at the church. Memorials may be made to the family. Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhoffsfuneralservice.com. Harback-Newhoffsfuneralservice is serving the family in their time of need. Melissa Jo Kelly, Cedar Rapids. Melissa Jo Kelly, 70, most recently a resident of both Cedar Rapids and San Francisco, California, died on August 10, 2022, at the Bird House Hospice Home of Iowa City. Private observances were conducted at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. Melissa, also known through her life as Melissa Jo Kelly, and Joe Kelly was born August 21, 1951, in Cortland, New York, to parents George and Lou Kelly. She grew up in the Washington, D.C. and Iowa City, Iowa, graduating from Western High School in Washington, D.C. in 1969. She attended college at the University of Iowa, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Cabrillo College in Aptos, California, earning an AA in Women's Studies with a focus in theater, and University of California Santa Cruz, earning a BA in Women's Studies with a focus in film and video production in 1996. Melissa was a political and feminist activist from an early age. As a teenager, she volunteered for the Iowa City Chapter of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and founded her high school's first student-run newspaper, She attended and helped organize anti-war and anti-racism marches in Washington, D.C. and other cities for decades. She resided in the Adams Adams Mills neighborhood of Washington, D.C. for many years, advocating for housing rights and against gentrification of that and other historically poor communities of color. Melissa worked with her father as office manager of George Kelly & Associates for many years. Following that, she worked for women's rights and cross-cultural diversity awareness commissions and departments in Washington, D.C., Santa Cruz, California, and San Francisco, California. She was an EEO and diversity training officer for San Francisco International Airport, administrator of the Violence Against Women programs for the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women, and coordinator for the City of Santa Cruz Commission for the Prevention of Violence Against Women. She was a founding board member of Defensa de Mujeres in Santa Cruz. Melissa also conducted cross-cultural and diversity training for many governmental agencies, nonprofits, and marginalized groups. Melissa enjoyed being an actress in local, local theater productions in Santa Cruz and San Francisco Bay Area. 
Some of her leading roles included Gertrude Stein in Gertrude Stein and a Companion, Arkadina in The Seagull, Maxine in Night of the Iguana, and Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She was also involved in productions for the San Francisco theater group Campo Santos. After retiring, Melissa returned to the Iowa City area to help care for her mother and brother in their later years. Melissa was preceded in death by her parents and brother Burgess Kelly. She is survived by her sister Kate, brother Sam Kelly, cousin Nellie Nye, nephew David, and nieces Victoria, Diana, and Eleanor Kelly. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be sent to the La Casa de las Madras, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Poor People's Campaign. Father Mark McGovern, Cedar Rapids. Father Mark McGovern, 81, of Cedar Rapids, died on Wednesday, January 11th at Stonehill Communities in Dubuque, Iowa. He was born on March 4, 1941, in Whitmore, to Joseph Francis and Alice Verona, Wisebrod, McGovern. He graduated from Riceville High School in 1959, attended Loras College and Mount St. Bernard Seminary. In 1967, he was ordained at Cathedral of St. Raphael in Dubuque. Mark served in several parishes throughout the Dubuque Diocese and also taught religion at Ocean de Sales and Cresco Notre Dame High School. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy in 1982 from St. Louis University and taught at Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri. Mark had a love for music. At family gatherings, he always entertained with his perfect pitch singing while playing his guitar. Besides being a member of a barbershop quartet, he loved flying his airplane, riding his motorcycle, canoeing, and especially playing games and cards with his nieces and nephews. He also enjoyed relaxing at a cabin he himself built next to a river near Cascade. Mark is survived by his brothers Mike, Jim, spouse Kathy, Terry, spouse Janet, and John, sisters Joan, spouse Dick, Britton, Mary, spouse Dick Whitaker, Ruth, spouse Marco Digetno, McHeisner, and Colleen, Frank, spouse Frank Forney, McGovern, brother-in-law Dick Lukritz, and 40 nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Joe and Verona McGovern, sisters Kathy Lukritz and Jane Kernan, brother and sister-in-law Art and Barb McGovern, and sister-in-law Betty McGovern. Massive Christian burial will be at 11 a.m. Friday, January 27th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Riceville, with Archbishop Michael Jackals presiding and Father Daniel, excuse me, Father Daniel Nipper homilist. Burial will be in Calvary Cemetery, Riceville. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 26th at Hint Hudek Funeral Home, with a scripture wake service at 7 p.m. Visitation will continue on Friday at the church, beginning at 10 a.m. G. Leroy Swore, 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 12th. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. Tuesday, January 17th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Leroy was born on January 27, 1937, in Cedar Rapids, to George and Thelma Swore. Leroy married his high school sweetheart, Judy Owen, the love of his life, on October 13, 1956. Their love expanded to include four beautiful children, a son, Scott Swarey, of Cedar Rapids, daughters, Julie, spouse Doug Rowe, of the Villages, Florida, 
Sean, spouse Urson, Ate of Cedar Rapids, and Sarah, spouse Joe Baldus of Cedar Rapids, and a daughter-in-law, Renee Swore of Cedar Rapids. Leroy is survived by 13 grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren, brother Denny Gladwin of Longmont, Colorado, brother Randy Gladwin of Florida, sister Darlene Swore of Cedar Rapids, brother Jerry, spouse Bev Swore of Boone, sister Cindy, spouse Ken Yetsund of Las Cruces, New Mexico, sister Sandy Swore McCrite of Cedar Rapids, and two sisters-in-law, Carol Swore and Cheryl, excuse me, Sharon Gladwin of Cedar Rapids. Leroy was preceded in death by his parents and three brothers, Chuck, Chris, and Rick. Leroy proudly served over five years in the Air Force Reserve, 133AWC, and National Guard. This service taught Leroy to put his heart into everything, especially his work. His passion for sheet metal led him to own and operate his own business, LADCO, for 13 years. He then worked for 25 years at Rockwell Collins as an industrial engineer when, where he retired. If anyone knows Leroy, they know his meticulous personality and attention to, de- to detail. Leroy led an HVAC class at Kirkwood for 10-plus years as he wanted to share his love and knowledge for the industry to aspiring students. Leroy's interests could be summed up in one word, family. There was nothing more important in his life than spending time with his wife and family. Leroy was an avid Hawkeyes fan, and he was known for being an amateur bookie as he put together his infamous football pools. The family would like to extend a sincere thank you to Cedar Rapids Hospice Care Initiatives for the care he received and the love he felt from each of you. Leroy was hesitant to let go of his independence, yet each of you treated him with such compassion. And to his grand living family, words cannot express the love he felt for each of you. From day one, he was able to build relationships and leave impressions that will forever be in our hearts. To the breakfast table that filled his heart until his last day, and to each staff member that adored him like their own, we are forever grateful you came into his life. As a member of St. Ludmilla Parish and his strong involvement in the annual Kolach Festival golf outing, memorial donations may be given to St. Ludmilla in lieu of flowers. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Mary Lou Elizabeth Wood, cool, entered eternal life peacefully on Thursday, January 12th at the Birdhouse Hospice Home. She was from North Liberty. A funeral service to celebrate Mary Lou's life will be held on 3 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in North Liberty. Visitation will be from 1 to 3 p.m. at the church prior to the service. A reception will follow. Committal will be at a later date at Aspen Grove Cemetery in Burlington. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Holy Trinity Church in North Liberty, Christ the King Lutheran Church in Iowa City, or to the charity of the donor's choice. Mary Lou Wood was born April 27, 1941, the daughter of Gladys Group, Frank E. Wood. She married Jerry Cool on April 28, 1968. They celebrated 54 years of marriage and their golden wedding anniversary with a family trip to Disney World in 2018. Mary Lou was an artist in the community. Her lifelong interest was the creation of porcelain dolls, and her proud accomplishment was the creation of most of the First Ladies in their inaugural gown. Over the years, they vacationed by visiting the presidential libraries and museums. Mary Lou was an accomplished seamstress and embroidery. 
She was an avid, avid quilter. Mary Lou was a partner in the organization of Holy Trinity Church, where she was an active member. She fully supported Jerry when he was a North Liberty City Council member. His great, her greatest accomplishment was her two sons and now grandchildren. Mary Lou is survived by her husband, Jerry, their sons, Matt of Coralville, and Dan, spouse Amanda of Altoona, four grandchildren, Daxton, Mava, and twins Audrey and Delia, three nephews and eight nieces, and many great-nephews and great-nieces. Mary Lou was preceded in death by her parents, siblings Robert, spouse Donna, and Virginia, spouse Frank Kluska, and her nephew. Luann Dvorak, Iowa City. Luann Dvorak, 66, of Iowa City, passed away Friday, January 13th, at the Birdhouse Hospice Home of Johnson County. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 17th, at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Burial will take place in Czech National Cemetery. Luann was born in July of 1956 in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Edwin and Marcella. She graduated from Prairie High School in 1974 and went on to nursing school before pursuing her Ph.D. She taught rhetoric at the University of Iowa as well as UCLA and the University of California, Merced. She was also active with the American Legion Auxiliary for many years. Luann enjoyed spending time with her cats, Kit and May, and watching birds, rabbits, and other wildlife. She also enjoyed classic movies and TV shows, watching Iowa football games with her son and grandson, and visiting with her daughter and grandpuppies. She will be remembered as a quirky, witty intellectual with a strong interest in politics and a passion for family history. Luann is survived by her daughter, Bethany Ryan, son, Sean Ryan, grandson, Dylan, sister, Joyce Kinney, brother David Dvorak, several nieces and nephews, and ex-husband Dan Ryan. She was preceded in death by her parents, Edwin Dvorak, and Marcella Dvorak Beneshek Klein, and a brother, Richard Dvorak. Memorials may be directed to the family, the Birdhouse, or Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center, UIHC, with special thanks to Dr. Mohammed Furkan. Online condolences may be expressed at the fa- to the family at brushchapel.com. Linda Lou St. John, 72, of Stanwood, passed away suddenly on Wednesday, January 11th. A memorial service will be held at Chapman's in Clarence at 2 p.m. Wednesday, January 18th, with Pastor Ron Lashmet officiating. Visitation will be from noon to 2 p.m. Burial will follow in St. John's Cemetery in Clarence. Linda was born April 17, 1950, in Monticello, Iowa, to Herman and Ruth Michaels Osterkamp. Linda is survived by her soulmate of 30 years, John Fetterson of Stanwood, her children Robert, spouse Regret, Brid, excuse me, spouse Bridget of Odenton, Maryland, and Darla, spouse Chad Gine of Greer, South Carolina, grandson Ashton, step-grandchildren Helena and DJ, John's children, Randy Fetterson of Cedar Rapids, Melanie Fetterson of Chicago, Christine Grogan, Krogan of Mount Vernon, and Wendy, Ralph's spouse Ralph Wartell of Rockford, Illinois, and siblings Denny, spouse Mary Osterkamp, Betty, spouse Almore Taken, Lucille, spouse Gary Shingledecker, 
and Belva spouse Lindsay German. She was preceded in death by her parents, brothers Willis, Donald, Ray, and Roy Osterkamp, sisters Mary Crotz and her husband Lee, Evelyn Greiser, Christine Keeney and her husband Wayne, and Barb Wallach and her husband Jim. Linda was a collector of Barbies and Elvis memorabilia. She enjoyed her morning coffee chats with the guys at the gas station and had a love for baking, especially her signature scotcheroos and baked beans. She also had a passion for gardening, yard work, and flower beds. Linda loved to laugh, and she brightened up any room she was in. She was a strong supporter of the United Way, the Cedar County Humane Society, and the American Cancer Society. Memories and condolences may be left at ChapmanManFH.com. Mary A. Alleman, 76, of Scotch Grove, passed away peacefully Friday, January 13th, surrounded by her family. Visitation 9 to 10.15 a.m. and Mass will be 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 17th at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Anamosa. Father Sean Smith will officiate. Mary was born in Dyersville, Iowa on March 27, 1946. She is the daughter of Leo and Rita Hargrafen Bonnert. On February 8, 1967, she mar- married Arnold Alamond at St. Paul's Catholic Church in Worthington. She retired from Rockwell Collins with 25 years of service with the company. Mary was a compassionate, caring person with a heart of gold. She would always assure others had excuse me, she would always assure others had what they needed to survive in life before putting her own needs first. Her energetic personality helped many when they asked for help or when their lives most needed a listening ear or a shoulder to cry on. She had a lifelong passion for baking homemade cookies and banana bread. She also enjoyed spending time with her granddaughter. Left to cherish Mary's memory are her daughter, Kathy, spouse Jim, Wilgenbush, and granddaughter, Madison, of Piosta. Two brothers, Ronald, spouse Gail Bonnert, of Dyersville, and Stephen, spouse Jane Bonnert, of Hopkinton. Her sister-in-law, Patty Bonnert, of Farley, and many nieces and nephews. Mary was preceded in death by her husband of 52 years, Arnie, a son, Mark, her parents, Leo and Rita Bonnard, brothers, Jerome and Carl Bonnard, one sister, Betty, husband, Frosty Smith, and a nephew, Corey Bonnard. The family of Mary wished to extend our sincere thanks to Above and Beyond Hospice and St. Croix Hospice. Also thanks to the caring staff at Anamosa Care Center and the family, friends, and neighbors who supported Mary along her courageous battle with cancer. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be made to the American Cancer Society in honor of Mary. Online condolences may be, may be directed to the family at iowacremation.com under obituaries. Gerald Jerry John Barr, 89, of Marion, died Friday, January 13th at Bickford of Marion. Funeral Mass, 10 a.m., Thursday, January 19th, at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church by the Reverend Douglas Locke. Burial, Mount Calvary Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family on Thursday at the church after 9 a.m. Tehan Funeral Home is serving the family. Jerry is survived by his two children, Mary T. Bohr and Tony Bohr. His three sisters, Viola Bohr, Arlene Bohr, and Jeannie Bohr Lechtenberg. His brother, Duane, spouse Connie Bohr, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, brothers, Wilfred Bohr and Linus Bohr, sisters-in-law, Arlene and Evelyn, 
brother-in-law Dwayne Lichtenberg, nephew Kevin Bohr, and niece Amy McClure. Jerry was born on December 28, 1933, the son of Anton and Matilda Hageman Bohr, near Ossian. He was the fourth of seven children. When Jerry was nine, his father passed away just as the nation was coming out of the Great Depression and still in the midst of World War II. At a very young age, Jerry knew the value of faith and hard work during hard times, traits he learned from his beloved mother and siblings as they continued to work the family farm. Always an attentive brother, Jerry took time to play card and board games with his sisters. They continued their love of playing cards, especially 500, as adults, and had many laughs during these special times together. After his graduation from DeSalle's High School in 1951, Jerry enlisted in the U.S. Army and was stationed in Korea and Japan. Following his service to our country, he attended DeVry University to become an electrician. Jerry worked for Cargill for 32 years, retiring in 1996. Growing up on a farm gave Jerry a love for the outdoors. As a young man, he enjoyed downhill skiing, water skiing, boating, fishing, and snowmobiling. As he neared retirement, he continued to appreciate the outdoors, and his deep roots in farming returned as he grew an amazing garden. He canned strawberry jam, and many of his nieces and nephews have Uncle Jerry's rhubarb dessert in their recipe boxes. Jerry made many trips to visit his siblings, which frequently included a trip to The Boat for a little fun gambling. Jerry was a loyal Chicago Cubs fan, and winning the 2016 World Series brought him great joy. Jerry was a kind and gentle soul who you couldn't help not being drawn to. He was loved by many, and this was never more apparent than the impact he made on the staff during his 31 days at Bickford of Marion Assisted Living. Jerry knew his life journey was coming to an end, but his lifelong deep faith gave him strength to approach death with grace and acceptance. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.